Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, the, the whole book of Hebrews um, can be quite challenging because as the name implies, it was originally written to folks of the Hebrew lineage or, or background. You know, have you ever gone to a friend's house or, or somebody's house who, um, you know, they just they came from a different culture or background and everything just seems backwards to you? You know, the food doesn't smell the same as the food at your house and they don't decorate the way you decorate. You know, things just aren't the things that you find important aren't important to them and vice versa. You know, they park on the street, you park in the driveway. You know, just just all kinds of random things like that. Um, they have cats, you have dogs, just culturally different. Hebrews can be like that because if we're Gentiles, if you're not a Hebrew, if you're not a Jewish person, you're a Gentile, we didn't grow up with a lot of tradition that the Gentile or excuse me, that the that the Jews had from birth. And so this book is for everybody, but it was originally intended for the Hebrew people. And the Hebrew people, I don't know if you guys know this, but they weren't real crazy about Jesus when he came and said, I'm the son of God, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one who came to take away the sins of the world. Um, they thought it was blasphemous that a man would consider himself equal to God. When he said, God is my father, he was, he was saying, I and the father are one, we're the, one and the same. The Jewish people, because of their deep tradition and their religion, couldn't accept that. And that ends with Jesus' crucifixion. Well, it ends up being an opportunity for Jesus to conquer sin, Satan, and death. Praise God for that. But the Hebrews, the Jewish people, they need Jesus just like we do. The, the Bible uh, in the New Testament, uh, the whole Bible itself, the authors were primarily Jewish men. With the exception of maybe Luke the physician... Some believe that he was actually a Gentile, but for the most part, Jewish men. The early church were Jewish people. The Jewish people are not inescapable from salvation, but it becomes very hard. And so you find this book written to an audience that, that needs to find out about their Savior. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, after sharing what, what the writer calls this great cloud of witnesses, he talks about men like Moses and David and, and Gideon and and he talks about uh, Noah and 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 the and and Rahab the prostitute. These people who, by faith, did something for Jesus. And he uses this phrase about running your race. What they did was they ran their race. They had a race set before them. They had a track. They had a a, a path. And Jesus led them. He he was a trailblazer, a pioneer of the path before them, and they ran it. They didn't give up. They didn't stop. They may have failed, but they got back up and kept running as fast as they could. And so equally, the word turns to us and tells us to run our race. Run your race. What is your race? That's, that's half your battle right there. But once you have your race, we need to start running it. I, I can't run your race for you. Your friends can't. We can help you. We can come alongside you. We can cheer you on. We can encourage you. We can offer you examples. We can teach you the word. We can share with you Jesus. But but the running of that race is going to be your feet following after Jesus's. Hebrews 12 and 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy was set before him or for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the, of the throne of god let's pray jesus i pray for one thing very specifically here today lord because i am a faulty human being because my default setting is is religious practice rather than practical living for christ lord that only through your spirit do, does that ever get accomplished i pray for undue burden your word says that your burden is light that your yoke is light that's what we want today that yoke the burden of religion the the burden of of of, of our flesh we don't we want to discard that we want to crucify that we want to throw away the sin we want to cast off the sin that clings so closely so that we might run this race that you've set before us so father bring clarity to us give us ears to hear eyes to see and hearts to receive the glory that is your son jesus in his name we pray amen so have you ever noticed and maybe you've never you've never pondered this but you but it crosses your mind every now and again have you noticed that christianity is this life of tension the these great these great opposites seemingly polar opposites that are called to coexist if you've ever put you know two magnets together and you get the wrong ends together what do they do they, they kind of they kind of bounce off each other right get the right side boom get the opposite sides eh, it doesn't really work right you get the wrong sides i should say the christian life is much like that there are things that we're called to do that seemingly are the opposite of what we should be doing so for example in matthew chapter 5 during the sermon on the mount jesus tells us to love our enemies and we might say well why would you love your enemy they obviously don't like you you know let's let's love people who love us that's easier they're the ones that invite us to the potlucks and and they bring us gifts on christmas we like them they're not our enemies jesus said well anybody can do that anybody can love somebody who loves you that's easy but what about the enemy what about the person who hates you what about the person who doesn't care about your walk with christ how how are you treating them are you loving them too say, wow that seems opposite to love to love your enemy seems like i should hate my enemy and love the people who love me jesus said no loving people who love you is easy but learning how to love your enemy who hates you is entirely different see that from the eyes of christ walking the road of calvary to the cross that would take his life dying for his enemies us he's not telling us to do something he has not already done himself loving your enemies there's tension there the rule seems easy enough but the practicality of it gets really hard right when someone cuts you off your first primary uh, when you're driving your first primary instinct isn't to love them when someone steals from you your 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 first go-to is not i love them this, this is this is where the tension comes in the practicality of living a christ-like life in luke chapter 22 jesus tells his disciples if you want to lead serve you want to be a leader of men then serve men Jesus doesn't say find position, get men underneath you, you know, climb the corp, uh, excuse me, climb the corporate ladder, learn how to win friends and influence people. He says, no, you want to, you want to lead men, serve men. You want to lead a church, serve a church. You want to lead a family, serve a family. He doesn't say become a better leader. He says become a better servant. Life attention seems like seems like I should sharpen up my leadership skills and I become a better leader. 
The way you do that is by becoming a better servant. Now, don't, mis no, don't mistake slave and servant, those two words. Jesus comes as our servant, but he doesn't come as our slave. The difference is we don't, we don't own that person. They aren't, they aren't, if you're a slave to somebody, you really have no option in it. But a servant comes out of love and says, I want to come underneath you. I want to serve you. I want to give to you because you are so good. You're my prized treasure. You are, you are mine and I am yours. I want to serve you. So as parents, we're called to serve kids. And as kids, we're called to serve parents. And as people in a church, we're called to serve the church. And pastors serve the people. And the people serve the pastors. And do you see how if people are serving one another, it's really hard to take advantage of one another because I'm always looking to serve. Where we get into trouble is the practicality, the actual practice of this. Because sometimes you go and serve somebody who's not there yet, and they do take advantage of you. And that's okay. We're seeking to please the Lord. He's the first person we're serving. And we can look past somebody who's maybe not thankful or somebody who's not in a position yet to understand what you're trying to show them. That's okay. But if you want to be a leader, then become a better servant. The best bosses we've ever had are the ones that you knew were in your corner, the ones that were working for you, not just for their own gain. And in that, they found their own gain. You ever notice that? It's that life of tension. The best husbands are the ones that are serving their wives and vice versa. Man, if you, if you look at a marriage and you think that they're doing really well, odds are they're probably serving one another. Not all the time. I mean, you're not seeing them yell at each other, but for the most part. That's where you start to see what are what is seemingly opposite. You start seeing the, this law that God has. It's like the law of gravity, but, but differently. Jesus also tells the disciples, because I have to assume that if you're going to hang out with Jesus every day for three and a half years, you're going to start to think you're pretty special. Like, I was there when he split the fishes and loaves, right? I was there when he resurrected Lazarus from the dead. I was there when he resurrected this person from the dead and healed that sick and cast out that demon. And you start to think, well, I'm in a pretty privileged place. And the disciples were always looking to see who was going to be the number two to Jesus' number one. There was a time where James and John are bickering, they're arguing, and then the disciples are all fighting with them. And Jesus is like, what's going on? They're like, well, we're, we're fighting over who's going to sit at your at your side when, when you reign and rule. They're not worried about serving. They're not worried about uh, loving people. They're worried about position. And, and we as people, we do the same thing. Let's not look too far down at the disciples. We, we'd have done the same thing if we were there. Walking in the presence of God, the Son of Man, and, 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 and fully carnal. That's, that's the worst. So Jesus tells them, hey, you want to be great? Become the least. Here he goes with that whole opposite thing again. You want to be really great? Become really low. You want to be up high? Bring yourself down. In the book of James, James talks about showing partiality and the rich man comes in and the poor man comes in and you, and you go and you show favoritism to the, to the one that's rich and you discard the one that's poor because you're looking at it from a carnal mind, a flesh mind. This guy can do something for me. The poor man can't do anything for me. And Jesus says, no, no. Make yourself the least of these if you want to be great. See, notice how Jesus is not calling being great or being a leader a sinful thing. Some folks, just because they're leaders, some people, well, they're, you know, that's wrong. Well, no, Jesus calls leaders to, to lead, but he calls them to lead as serving, and he calls men to be great. 
what little I know about the Reverend Billy Graham is that he's done some great work, hasn't he? And I could be bitter and say, well, you know, he shouldn't be that prominent. His name shouldn't be displayed. God calls some men to be great. He calls us all to a certain level of greatness. I mean, we're serving the one true king, so that, that in and of itself is great. But we're not all going to have our name on a marquee. We're not all going to write books. We're not all going to you know, have a, a great podcast or, or, or a large following because most of us can't handle that anyways. But if we are called to be great, Jesus says, how do, you, how do you get that, maintain that, and use it responsibly? Well, you make yourself low. Don't believe all your own hype. Don't let your head get so blown up that you start believing that you're really great. Keep reminding yourself that you're the, you're the least of these. You are, you are without God. You are nothing. That's not just false humility. That's the truth. Without Jesus, we're nothing. Turning it around a little bit, Jesus says, to hunger, then eat. See, we would say if we're hungry, uh, to, to be full, we should eat. You know, one of the, the plagues of our culture is we have no hunger or appetite for the Lord. We have so many ways to fill this appetite we have. You know, video games and and, and 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 even good stuff. I mean, video games aren't necessarily all that bad. I love video games, but video games, uh, books, television, our jobs. Then you got sinful things that that we use to feed that appetite as well. And Jesus says, you know, if if we want to be hungry for God, we have to eat from Him. If you want to develop a greater hunger for the Lord, begin to feast on the Lord. Psalm 34 and 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. If you don't know that the Lord is good today, the metaphor that the writer of Psalm uses is taste, experience. Go to Jesus. Read his word. Call on his name. Taste and see that he's good. Everybody's going to the state fair right now, right? You're going to taste all kinds of things if you go. You're going to see that some things are good and some things are bad. I was reading a description of a hamburger that they have there called the defibrillator. Have you guys seen that? My goodness. I was reading – what did you say? It does look good, but I think it has the best name imaginable. I was reading this description, and I just began to giggle as I saw each word after the next. It was like this ginormous burger that's got bacon, and, and, and the bread is not just bread. It's two grilled cheese sandwiches. And then you, you should just wrap it at that point in like an, another slab of bacon at that point. Just, just why stop there? There are people who are going to go. They're going to they're going to experience that. They're going to taste it. They're going to see that it's going to kill them, but that it's probably good too. Now I ain't knocking it. I'm just saying. The pickles are deep fried. The Oreos are deep fried. Your shoe is deep fried. Whatever you want to deep fry, you can take it. To, there's a there was. I don't know if they still have. They had a thing. Bring me anything. We'll deep fry it for like five bucks. So you go down, you get the, the Italian sausage here. You bring it there. They'll deep fry the thing for you. You know, you go, you win one of those stuffed animals by throwing a dart. You bring the stuffed animal, they'll deep fry it for you. They'll deep fry anything for five bucks. Genius. My point is this. We understand that metaphor, right? The writer of Psalms, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, uses this timeless 
metaphor and analogy. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He is good. I could tell you all day long the good things he's done for me, but you need to taste and see that the Lord is good. And as you begin to taste and see, you begin to hunger more for the Lord. When you begin to see him work in the lives of your family and other people, you begin to hunger for that. I was reading the book of J, uh, not James, the book of uh, Jeremiah last night, and Jeremiah is a hard book. There's like a million chapters, and it's and it's the Old Testament and this prophet, and and God keeps calling Israel a whore, and it's like, oh my gosh, what an, an amazingly crazy book. Like, they don't teach that in Sunday school. Like, it's an incredible. And I was just reading, I couldn't stop. And one more chapter, one more chapter, one more chapter. Eventually, at chapter 29, I had to stop. I had started like at 24, so I wasn't reading a whole lot, but I was like, I'll read one more chapter. I'll read one more chapter. My gosh, Jeremiah, he just stood up and he said things that the Lord told him to say. He was calling out false prophets and showing up with a yoke over his neck, and he held it like that for like a long time. And he kept saying, it's not going to end well for you. Repent. Give your life back to, to God. And they were like, no, that's not going to happen. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You want to be hungry for God? Begin to feast at the table of God. Psalm 63 and 1 says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Once again, metaphor, not just hunger, but thirst. You ever been like really thirsty like not not just like oh i think i'm gonna go have a beverage like if i don't drink right now i'm going to die like i've been mowing the lawn and it's like 95 degrees out with 300 percent humidity i have to drink now or i'm just gonna collapse like that thirsty some of you take medication gives you the dry mouth right and you're like oh i gotta drink now the writer of psalm says it's like that that's his thirst for the lord is like that and some of you have 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 you, you've diluted or dumbed down that appetite because you've suppressed it with something else. Now you have an appetite for, for the Lord, but you've used something else to fill that appetite. You know, Just like you might have an appetite for dinner, but then you go and you have a little snack, and it kind of spoils your dinner because your mom and dad kind of knew what they were talking about. But they never told you your appetite would come back. They never tell you that part. You kind of like, oh, you know, I could have enjoyed this great feast, but I had to go have that snack first. And now I'm only sort of hungry. Now I just kind of, I'll, I'll still eat it. I'll still, I'll still have pleasure from it, but it's not going to be all that great. Not like it would have been if I would have just waited a little bit and feasted from the right place. If you aren't thirsty, if you aren't hungry, maybe it's because you're dumbing down your appetite to the one true God and you're not feasting on him through his word. You're not feasting on him through serving. You're not feasting on him through prayer. And lastly, this is kind of the, the main point of today, that in our weakness, we are made strong. We are weak. We, we aren't in and of ourselves these big powerhouses. If you see men who do preach or women or groups or churches that grow and preach the gospel and go all over the place and bring Bibles and medicine and, and, and start hospitals and orphanages and they do these great things. They don't do those things in and of their own power. They are filled with the Holy Spirit to do that. But without that filling of the Holy Spirit, there is nothing but weakness. 
Think about it for a moment. God has built a church that he says the gates of hell will not prevail against. And what does he build it out of? A bunch of broken sinners. Go to Lowe's, ask them for all the broken two-by-fours and all the broken nails and all the broken tools and all the broken this and all the crooked that and then build something spectacular and marvelous. None of you would do that. You'd go and buy the best of everything that you could. If you could afford it, you'd get the straightest lumber. You'd get the best nails. The things are going to last because you want this to last. And God comes in and he brings a bunch of broken people who have just done nothing but sin. Every inclination of their heart is to sin. He cleans them up. He changes their nature and builds the church. Of all the scandal, of all the, the things that have been done, all the negative we see, the church just will not die. Have you ever noticed that? Some of the most horrendous allegations that have been confirmed of the last 5, 10, even 20 years. Stealing, child abuse, abuse of power, taking advantage of the old or the elderly. I mean, just some of the worst crimes ever committed in the name of Jesus, yet the church does not die. God takes broken people, broken sinners, builds something that cannot be destroyed because it's built on the foundation of Jesus through Jesus and for Jesus those people that take Jesus's name and abuse it that's not the church that's not Jesus doing that that's faulty men who have found a way to be wolves in sheep's clothing and that's those aren't our brothers and sisters in Christ we don't that's not us but for us for this church, for the big C church that transcends you know, culture, generation, all of those things, it's never going to be destroyed. Not because we're really strong people, but because we're really weak and God is really strong. 2 Corinthians 12 and 10 says this, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And some of us have this misconception that if things just get correct and get right, then we'll flourish and things will move forward. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says through the power of the Holy Spirit, now I embrace these things. I embrace my weakness, my calamities, the things that I'm going through. I, embrace, I know that this is what I'm going through. And these things make me weak. These are my weaknesses. Yet in these things, I am made strong because Jesus steps up through me to do them see see the world they only have their own strength and when that strength is gone they become a casualty right they're just you can't keep up with corporate america you're going to be lost and buried you can't keep up in the sports world you can't keep up in the business world you can't then you just get left behind it's survival of the fittest and for christians it's the survival of the weakest for those of us who just sit back and say you know what i'm weak Yes, there are these things happening in my life. Yet through this weakness, God is strong in me. Now, in context, and we've got to keep this in context, what Paul is talking about is what he, recalled, or what he uh, refers to as his thorn in his side. He had this issue which he prayed to the Lord about three times, three whole times. You ever prayed to the Lord for something more than three times? Paul seemed to be content to pray three times and then like yell at God. Like, I already prayed three times already. What's going on? And, and God says to, 
to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And that's all Paul needs to hear. He doesn't say, and then my calamities go away. Then my, then my distresses are all done. Paul's life is all the same in circumstances, yet now he has proper perspective on Jesus. He will move forward, not because the roadblocks are taken out of the way, but because through him, he'll be strong enough to just plow right through them. You know, sometimes we get caught in this maze and we got to figure the way out. Sometimes we just got to push through the walls. You know, sometimes the maze is not solvable. Just push right through. Not in your own power, though, in the power of Christ. And this is that, this is that tension that we're talking about. This is what we in the Bible calls endurance. Because this is going to call on you to keep standing no matter what. To keep moving forward no matter what. The, the good news here, especially for guys like me, in my size, the race that we're running is not about who finishes first. It's just about finishing. You might be the last one, but praise God, you finished. The, the goal is not to, to finish perfectly, at least in our own perfection. It's to finish in Christ, and then there we find the perfection. It's that you finish, that you get back up, that when you fall and when you stumble, you get right back up, that you keep running. But this takes endurance. Jesus said, or the Bible says, I should say, in, in chapter 12 about Jesus, in verse 2 of chapter 12, Look into Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. See, we, we put a cross here a couple years ago. It's an empty cross. Praise God, Jesus is not on the cross anymore. But it's a reminder not only of what Jesus did for us, but for us to carry our cross. We are called to carry the same thing that Jesus carried. I can't think of something more daunting. Jesus probably could have said anything else, but, but to carry our cross, I think it gets, to, it gets to the very center of who we are. It's the last thing we want to carry. It's the last thing we want to do. We, we, don't, want, we don't want more pain. We don't want more suffering. The cross is all about pain and suffering. We, we, we make movies and write stories and retell and have plays trying to, to exemplify the pain that Christ went through. We can't do it. The whipping, the flogging, the scourging, the the whips and the and and the and the crown of thorns and the spitting in Jesus' face just to be nailed to a cross and Jesus says, You are gonna be be carrying your cross and carrying your cross daily. Pick up your cross, follow me. That's a true disciple. You don't become a disciple of Jesus without carrying the cross. You don't. There's no there's no fast pass to discipleship. But how do we do that? See, see, right now we could have the burden of, okay, I have to endure because Jesus endured and just go off in that mindset and then just kill ourselves in religion. Got to keep going to church. Got to keep praying. Got to keep reading my Bible. Burden, burden, burden. These things are meant to be joy for us. If we're going to give our time to Jesus, we're meant to give it cheerfully. There should be a joy aspect of this where we enjoy what we're doing. Now, we won't always. I love my kids. Earlier this week, 
Ellie woke up in the middle of the night. Lots of coughing, gagging, had to throw up. You know, didn't enjoy waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning having to clean up, you know, this. But I'm a dad. I have to do that. My, my wife's her mom. We have to do that, right? You're, what else are you going to do? Now, you will do it for the joy of raising a child, but in that moment, that, that's hard. That's where you have to endure. But how do we endure? There is no key. There is no secret. Anybody telling you there's a secret is lying to you, and you can call them a liar and run away. Tell them that. The, the, the secret, if you will, is discipleship. If you continue on in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, it says this. Consider him, that's Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, uh, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, or the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Become a disciple of Jesus. You want to endure the life that is ahead of you? You must become a disciple of Jesus. Jesus, before, before he left, one of the last things he said during his earthly ministry was to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of, of, the, you know, of Jesus. Go and make disciples. If you're not becoming a disciple, then you're probably being overwhelmed by life. If you're becoming a disciple, life can still be overwhelming, but you're moving forward. See, one's pushing you back, and the other one's causing you to resist and move forward. If you're not becoming a disciple, you probably aren't enduring. If you're not enduring, life has become very hard and arduous. Life in and of itself is really hard, isn't it? I mean, life's just not fair. My kids all the time, that's not fair. Yeah, I know, life's not fair. Just get used to it. It's not, right? People get cancer and people die in car accidents and things just happen. Life's not fair. Not in our sense of fairness. God himself comes and dies for sinners. That's not fair. Though he had no sin, he steps up and dies for sinners. That's not fair. Yet he does it anyways, because that's how he's going to save his people. How do you become a disciple? Well, you start with the word of God. You won't know God without the word of God. You get to know each other by our words, right? I mean, our actions, they play a part too. But when you sit down and have a conversation with somebody, that's when you get to know more about them. When you start to understand what makes them tick. Like when I sit down and have a conversation with somebody, and then, you know, an hour into the conversation, they say, yeah, and I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. I'm like, whoa, red flags all over the place. Football season's coming. Get ready for those Dallas Cowboy jokes. My, my point is this. You get to know people as you sit down and talk. People could serve you all day. You might not get to know them all that well. But when you sit down and talk to them, you converse with them, when you hear their story, you get to know them. When we sit down with the Word of God, we're getting to know Jesus. We're getting to know how he created earth. We're getting to know how he brought the Israelites out of captivity, how he called the prophets when, when those Israelites sinned against him, called these prophets up to tell him to stop. 
how how 2000 years ago he came to this earth as a as a baby in a dirty manger and and lived a sinless life and walked in ministry with with these these fishermen and tax collectors and and just these overall sinners and lived a sinless life and died for our sins we read about how Jesus himself his disciples were men that lived with him and talked with him and conversed with him daily for me as a dad I disciple my children and my wife the other day we had uh, some wood delivered for winter because it's coming around the corner right and so um, for the last few years with Ethan going through uh, leukemia and treatment you got to be careful with cuts and scrapes and bruises and infections and that sort of thing but that's kind of in the rearview mirror now and so the wood got delivered and he really wanted to help me stack the wood I said, all right, got him a pair of gloves, and we started stacking wood. He loved it. He was all sweaty and red-faced, and I was even more so sweaty and red-faced. And uh, he pipes in with this question about Jesus. And so we just began to talk about Jesus. It was his idea, his, his question, and we started talking about Christ. And in that is discipleship making. It's not about a Bible study. It's not about how many times you go to church. It's about living in communion with Jesus and his church and his people, his word and in prayer. As convoluted as we can make it, it's actually quite simple. Just be in life with people. And that can be hard. We're awkward now. Like it used to be back in the day, probably before I was born, you could just go to your neighbor and be like, can I borrow a cup of sugar? And then nowadays if you do that, you probably have the police called on you. Try to sell me sugar I saw on Dateline. That's a drug term. You know, it's just not as commonplace anymore. So we just, it's not that we have to go back. It's that we have to learn to adapt to the reality that we're in. You know, that's why things like Facebook and things can be so uh, beneficial. It's not always beneficial. But you can talk and converse with people while you're in your pajamas. And they don't know. You're like laying on the couch in your pajamas. Yeah, what are you doing? Nothing. What are you doing? Nothing. We could be doing this in person, but then I have to get dressed up. This is good too. Relationship. Being in community. All those big Christian fancy words that get thrown around too easily. But in that is discipleship. Just living with folks. Hey, I gotta, you know, I was gonna say pull this ox out of the mud, but I don't know if any of you have ox. I was thinking biblically. Yeah, hey, I just need some help pulling, you know, I need help stacking wood or chopping wood. Can you come over and help? Yeah, I'll come help. They just talk about something. And maybe it's not always about Jesus. Maybe it's about fixing a car or, you know, that time you almost lopped off your foot chopping wood. It's just, you're just getting to know one another. And at first, it's going to be hard. You can't force it. You can't make, you ever try to make kids be friends? Guarantee you the easiest way to make them enemies. Hey, go play with them. No, I don't want to. Why? Well, look at them. I don't want to play with them. And then you try to force it and they're like, no. But if you just put two kids in a room and back off, they'll be best of friends within an hour. Just living together. Oh, you like Lego? I like Lego too. We're best friends. Oh, you like NASCAR? I like NASCAR too. We're best friends. You like building stuff? I like building stuff. You like cooking? I like cooking. You like Seinfeld? I like Seinfeld. We're best friends now. Maybe not best friends, but at least the seeds are being planted. You like Jesus? I like Jesus. You church? I church. Just simplify it. Can I pray for you? Yeah, can I pray for you? Hey, have you ever asked this question? No, what question? Uh, why did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? 
don't know. I don't know. Put a grape in? I don't know. I don't know why they had belly buttons. How did... Here's a good question. Nobody ever asked this question. Jesus and... Or, excuse me. Joseph and Mary leave Jesus behind at the temple for three days before they notice that he's gone. I can't, I can't go ten seconds without knowing my kids are like, Oh my gosh, where are they? They've been abducted. I've seen Taken. A guy... Where, where is... They? Oh, they're right there. Okay, carry on. Keep playing. They went like a day and a half with the Son of God? Like Mary knew. Joseph could have still been iffy, but Mary knew. Angel and all that. She's like, okay, we're just going now. Oh no, where's Jesus? What were they doing? How far did they get? Like, can you imagine that trip to finally go get Jesus? You know, praying, Lord, I'm sorry. I lost your son. Just trying to go back to the temple as fast as you can. The temple's a big mess because everybody's making sacrifice and stuff. And there's Jesus. And what's he doing? He's not running away. He's not being, you know, uh, he's not being a bad kid. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the religious elite and sparring with them already at 12 years old. He's not off setting off firecrackers and, you know, doing stuff that 12-year-old kids do in the 50s. Like they don't, they don't. He's not doing any of that stuff. He's not trying to swindle people. He's in there talking about God, and he's like, I had to be about my father's business. And Mary and Joseph are like, oh, yeah, okay. If my son pulled that line, at first I might be like, oh, my son. I'd be like, get in here. What are you doing? Your poor sister saw you do that. Your mother's a mess. You know, that whole I'm about my father's business thing wouldn't go so far, but Jesus got away with it. Nobody asked that question. My point is this. If you want to become a disciple, you'll have to be with other people. Somebody's going to disciple you. Somebody's going to rear you. And then you're going to do the same for somebody else. Oh, I don't know the Bible. Then read the Bible. It's not that. It's You don't know the Bible. Then read the Bible. I don't know. You know, I didn't, I didn't know how to use Facebook, but then I used Facebook. And it wasn't that hard. I'm not equating Facebook to the Bible, but I'd take one or the other any day of the week. I didn't know how to cook, but then I cooked something. You ever try to cook something new? Sometimes it turns out horrible, right? You burn it, or even you follow all the instructions, and it's like that. I don't know how they got from there. You ever go on Pinterest? It's like they make things look so easy, and then you try it. It's like this didn't turn out that way. But then sometimes you do, and you're like, oh, it worked. Look, my salad's in a jar. Awesome. I, I cooked a T-bone steak yesterday. Anybody have a T-bone steak before? I think I may have had one as a kid, and I didn't know what it was. It was just meat. That's all I cared about. Well, you know, it's a big deal. So I'm looking up how to cook one on the Internet, because that's what you do now. If you know how to do something, just go on the Internet. And it's basically put on top of fire. That's the only recipe for it. Salt, garlic salt, put on top of fire. I'm like, all right. So I'm watching this thing, and I'm like, I keep flipping it. So I'm like, I'm not, I shouldn't be doing that, but I just can't resist. i got to flip it. I want to see the grill marks. I want to hear the sizzle. I'm like, I was so afraid it wasn't going to work out. And it did. It was amazing. It was amazing. Just this meat on a plate. Salt potatoes. It was amazing. We take out a lot of discipleship when we do that, don't we? We're just off on our own just trying to learn stuff. But, if, but I think God has made us to need each other in that way so that we can get into each other's lives and get messy. I'm not saying this to toot his own horn, but you know how many times Justin's been to my house to fix something? And we talk about stuff. 
We talk about what's happening at the church. We talk about what's happening in people's lives. We talk about what's happening in his life. He talks, and I share stuff with me, and then the kids run around. Hey, Justin. Hey. Hey, Ethan. Hey, Ellie. It's part of our life. I go to his house, and we swim in his pool. Talk about stuff. Eat hot dogs and just talk about everything. Jesus, life, church, everything. It's not a privileged place. We've just, we just start talking to each other. Go to Mark's house and go visit Terry's chickens. Never seen a woman more proud of chickens. And praise God, she has a great chickens to be proud of. And the stories about their names, I won't share all the details, but they have great names. Watching the chicken coop grow from, from, from a, a small chicken coop to like this deluxe plaza hotel of a chicken coop. And uh, the kids running out there and Mark chasing the chickens and just getting to know people. You know, I one of the greatest joys I have as a pastor is when somebody comes to me, oh, yeah, I went and hung out with so-and-so this week. We went and got lunch. Really? The church didn't sanction that? Like, yeah, I know. We just went because we're grown-ups. We can go and get coffee at Dunkin' Donuts. Really? You did that? That's awesome. Yeah, they had me over for dinner. Oh, that's great. We went for a bike ride. Amazing. Probably what parents are trying to do with their kids when they force them together. But, but developing those relationships, they lead to discipleship. They just always do. The cross, to bring it back down, the cross was amazingly devastating and gruesome, right? I mean, it's liberating. The cross sets us free, the, the sacrifice of Christ, but, man, we can't really paint. We, they don't make a VeggieTales out of that, you know? It's the crucifixion. But it says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Here's where we go back to the joy aspect of all of this. Christianity is hard. Following Christ... Following a perfect God sometimes gets hard because we are imperfect, right? We just get frustrated. We just fall down. We keep falling down. We keep falling down. It's like, man, am I ever going to stop falling down? Jesus picked up his cross, carried it up that hill because there was joy on the other side of that cross. For you, there is joy from endurance. The other side of that endurance is the joy set before you. Now, what is that joy? I don't know. It comes in all kinds of different flavors and forms. A, being a child of God. We sang that a little bit ago, didn't we? Man, what a glorious privilege to be called the son of God. Not, not everybody gets that. Not everybody gets to be a daughter of God. We aren't just all God's children. The Bible says that we were born spiritual orphans dead in our own sin. And it takes an act of God to save us from that, to call us from that. So I don't know if you guys heard Justin, but he referred to Psalm 91. I'm going to kind of go there, but with a different Psalm. So Psalm 23. Everybody knows Psalm 23, right? If you don't know Psalm 91, you definitely know Psalm 23 because it's always at the funerals and stuff like that. Psalm 23 verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And we always want it to end right there because that all sounds good, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We're, we're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death till the day that we die. It's just always going to be there. Sometimes 
to get to the place where we're going, we have to get through that valley of the shadow of death. To get to a marriage that works, to get to kids that aren't crazy, to get to health that is no longer deteriorating. To get through to the other side, we got to get through the valley of the shadow of death. But even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Church, life is scary, and we are called to fear not. Psalm 91 says, though 10,000 fall at one side and 1,000 fall on the other side, that's war. That's, not, that's just not going to Walmart one day, although it does seem like there's that many people that are dead in Walmart at any given time. He's talking about war. He's talking about being, being the only one protected when everybody else is being devastated. It doesn't tell us to stop walking through the valley. It tells us that we're going to, but we'll have God with us. He's our shepherd. He's our good shepherd. This is why we endure, because we have Jesus with us. And we don't have a God who can't relate to us. He walked that valley first. So Matthew 16 and 24 in closing says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would follow me, excuse me, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You want life? You want to endure? Carry your cross? Find out what that is? Be in communion with God? Read your word? Pray? Serve? Love? Lead? Be small to be great, to hunger, eat, to be thirsty, drink, and give your life to Jesus. The life of a Christian is not perfection or lack of trial. It's the strength to get through every adversity that, that life throws at you. Sin's after you. Your flesh is after you. The world is after you. How are you going to compete without God on your side? Amen? Psalm 118, what does it say? God is on my, I'll paraphrase, but God is on my side. What can man do to me? Echoed again in, in, in Romans 8, I believe, that, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? So there's this challenge, church. There's this challenge that we gotta, we've got to step up in Christ or, or, or we're just going to watch life just plow right over us. So let's stand. We endure because God is good. We endure because Jesus is amazing. We endure because we've been called to it, but we endure because he is worthy of it. And there's times where we'll give up, and those who are still enduring will come and lift you up. And there's a time where someone will fall down, and you'll go over and you'll help them up. But I want to pray for you. Jesus, we love you. And um, we pray for, in our church, Lord, we want to be known as those who don't shrink back. We want to become valiant men and women who follow after you. That we don't care what the world says. We don't care what our flesh says. We don't care what Satan says. We only care what you say. We want to follow you. And Lord, that's hard sometimes. I mean, even though the yoke is easy and light, Lord, it's still this battle inside of us to, to even put on the yoke. To even decide to follow you. And Lord, you are good. You've done everything to get us to this moment in time to actually make this choice. And I just want to pray for us all, Lord. 
that we would walk forward from this place today knowing that our sin is not us, that we have not sinned or we have not resisted so much to where we, we shed blood, that, that Jesus is indeed the very Son of God who, who died for our sins to enable us to even be this hopeful today. And from here on out, Lord, that we would walk that path that you've laid before us and that we even get to a place where we run, where we run the race set before us because you have ran it and ran it perfectly. Jesus, may you receive all the glory. We're, we're weak. Like Paul said, we're weak. But in our weakness, the strength of your son Jesus shines so brightly. We praise you, Lord. May your name be high and lifted up. May you receive all of the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.